Welcome to Dragon Talk. I like to say that as loud as possible and make everyone really uncomfortable. I'm Greg Tito. I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> That's like the worst dad joke in the world. And you nailed it. Thank you. Well done, Shelly You laughed. I did. I did because I'm a jerk. Uh, this is Dragon Talk, the official Dungeons the Dragons podcast, yep. wherein we talk about uh, voice acting mostly right. on Shelly's point of view. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and of course, Dungeons and Dragons. A little bit of celebrity gossip. There's that, too. I haven't talked about The Bachelor once. Uh, except for the last time. I feel like you mentioned it. I don't think I have. Okay, fine. We'll, t- we'll have to... But when Kate's here, I might. I'm just telling you right now. Oh. But you're saying that like Kate's not actually here, which she is. She's being very quiet, like She's a mouse. She's so cute. I'm trying not to uh, interrupt your banter. It, it's terrible banter. Please feel free to interrupt. Bachelor? I don't. Okay, but we can still. I thought, <laughs> I thought we might you just want to get about... people to join your cult. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's almost over. I haven't even talked about it. People who watch it's the cult of the damned. It really is. They're really, they're really bad people. There's Oscar fashion. We haven't talked about. I know that. we have not talked about that, and we got a lot to talk about. Actually, we Greg and Ryan and I talked about that last week because Greg was all like, "Oh, I love what's her name, Janelle, Janelle Monet." Yeah, what, is that her name? Yeah, her Why dress her was name... amazing. Did you like it or not? Uh. I've seen her do better. Right, I wasn't a, I wasn't a fan of it. I watched the Fashion Police, and they were like number oh. one best dressed. They loved it. Yeah, everyone likes it except for you. I'm not people. feeling it. Yeah, didn't love it. All right. Anyway, I so, guess I'm I'm really in the minority. <laughs> but you're not <laughs> apparently in this room. I mean, and yeah, because yeah. you didn't like it either, right, Ryan? No, he didn't like yeah. it either. Yeah, you guys were wrong. It was amazing. Well, I guess nobody knows fashion like Greg Tito. <laughs> <laughs> That's in my byline, That's right? Fashion expert. Well, Kate Irwin is here to talk uh, as well with uh, uh, Justin from uh, WizKids about miniatures, the monster menagerie line that's been out for a while. Miniatures. Uh, we'll call Justin in uh, in just a little bit, but we have uh, some fun uh, things to talk about. Tales from the Awning Portals coming out April 24th. No. April, March. No. March 24th. Tito. I did it again. <laughs> March 24th. April 4th is going to be the... Yeah. Uh, street date uh, wide release. Right around the corner. Yeah, but on March 24th, you can get it in your favorite game store, which we suggest you do because they're awesome. In your face. (laughs) You can get it in your favorite game store. Favorite game store (laughs) on March 24th. (laughs) Uh, which you should do. Uh, it's got seven amazing adventures from D&D past, uh, uh, present, and future. No, wait, no, maybe not the future. Uh, but <laughs> it's a, revamping them for 5th edition uh, so you can drop it into your campaign at any time. And it's all used the uh, wrapper of Durnan, the barkeep of the Burnin. Yawning Portal himself. Uh, he tells all these stories about all these adventures. Uh, if you were going to find out about all these crazy stories from different worlds in the D&D multiverse, you would find out about it at... That amazing bar in Waterdeep. Uh, so go check that out when it comes out. Um, what else is going on? We have Chris Perkins uh, doing Dice Camera Action uh, every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific time. He's running uh, that crazy waffle crew through uh, some Storm King's Thunder content, some adventures, which Chris also wrote, and he's like remixing and or making it really like I did like a DJ yeah, motion you did. With, the, with the remixing. When you said remixing. Yeah. I feel like anyone, anyone ever says remixing, they have to make a DJ motion. For or else sure. No one knows who they're talking about. I don't know. I wouldn't know. Do you want to remixing? What? what? Oh, I get it. Now you know. Now I get it. So yeah, go check that out. It's every Tuesday at 4 p.m. on the D&D Twitch channel, which is Watsi underscore D&D, I believe. When are uh, you running? Wizards underscore what D&D. are you doing? When are you running more games? Soon. We'll are see. You? Yeah. 
I, nothing to announce uh, particularly right now, yes. but maybe some things will drop. We keep talking about our West Seattle game that we got to start up. I know. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to happen one of these days. As soon as our kids get to be like 10 years older. They can watch themselves. Uh, and drop them in there. I feel like our kids are fine when they're left alone together. Well, I yeah. mean, like alone being like they're in another room. True, but then there's the loudness. Of them? Yeah. Oh, yeah, live stream. If you're live streaming, you don't necessarily want the like, daddy, daddy, every five seconds. No. I mean, I know we want that in our normal lives. I don't. All the time. No. Oh, <laughs> daddy, I would be fine with because that's not me. Oh, yeah. I get called mommy a lot though and daddy. And then they're like, they, they correct themselves. They like self-correct, yeah, but it's definitely the same tone too. of voice. It really doesn't matter to them. Anywho, we'll do one <laughs> of those games uh, with or without them. But I think when Edna gets to be six, I think we might want to integrate her. Maybe she'll be part of the stream. Oh, yeah. I took her to Emerald City Comic Con. You need to. I think she would be perfect. This weekend, and she, like, absorbed so much. I she was see. just, like, she just loved it. She's like a little sponge anyway. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I bet she's going to be making some really good artwork. I know. That's what... Filling her head with ideas. I hung up her painting, by the way. Oh, no way, really? It was like hung up on my wall. That's awesome. Her, you, Kate, you would love it. We should bring it in and have you. Like, I've really... seen it on Facebook. The her, owl? The owl? No, not the owl, but, I've, but oh. I have seen her art. She made I, I'm, this, like, I'm familiar owl. with her work. <laughs> I'll have to tell yes. her. I'll make sure and tell her. Yeah. She's like, you got fans. She could have like a little gallery show. Yeah. It's really she, good. I've been collecting tons of stuff. And I'm like, this is worth worthwhile. I'm still impressed with the. The Father's Day card that she <laughs> did for you, you you guys at the park, and she was like hanging upside down, but she was had like the skills to like make her hair hang, mm-hmm. and like her face upside down. Gravity still, still like, works. Yes, yeah. but for like a she was like three or four when she did that one. Yeah, that was last year, so she was uh, five. But oh, yeah. Well, then I'm not as impressed. But still, Just it's, kidding. well, it's, the best part about that Father's Day card is that one pane is her with me watching her climb a tree, which oh, is yeah. what she's doing. And then the next was like, oh, and here's me climbing a tree and you looking at your phone. And like, <laughs> she, did, she drew him on his phone. There's me looking at a phone. <laughs> and she's like, I did that first, but then I felt bad. So I did the other one. <laughs> I'm like, oh. Aww. Just be like, honey, I don't feel bad when I'm on my phone when right. you're climbing a tree, so you shouldn't like, feel bad. What a sad commentary on your parenting skills yeah. is to be like, happy Father's Day. This is you. Happy Father's Day from your phone. From your phone. <laughs> from your favorite child. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, all yes, right. she would be wonderful in a D&D campaign. We're going to have to do it. Uh, all right, so before uh, we get to our interview, uh, we're going to have a lovely segment uh, coming up just about now. Hello, and welcome to another edition of Lore You Should Know. I am Greg Tito, and I am joined by Lore Master Matt Cernet. Hello. How goes it this fine day? It goes excellently. Are you excited to talk about the jungles of Chult? Absolutely. We, uh, this was another topic that was um, suggested by a Twitter user by the name of Buddy Unger at Veritable20. So thank you so much, Buddy, for that. And uh, guys, if you guys have more topics for Lore You Should Know you might want to know about, uh, make sure you message me. Uh, I'm at Twitter. I'm at Greg Tito. And uh, yeah, definitely taking suggestions. There's a lot of fun stuff to talk about, and uh, we want to make sure we give you all of the lore you need in your brain pan. Uh, so, uh, Chult is an area in the Forgotten Realms, uh, far to the south of the Sword Coast. Uh, what can you tell us about it? Chult's fantastic. It's got <laughs> dinosaurs. <laughs> Can't I, go wrong with dinosaurs. <laughs> I've always loved Chult. So, uh, Chult was originally mentioned first in the the first gray box for Forgotten Realms in 1987. So, um, it goes way back when. 
And then uh, it was mentioned again in, um, let's see, uh, in the Moonshe um, product uh, by Douglas Niles in Waterdeep in the North, uh, and then Dragon issue number 127. So, but it's just sprinkled in. There's just little mentions of, of Chult as this sort of dark continent with jungles, uh, ebony-skinned people, ooh. <laughs> um, and, uh, which is a little weird because there are black people, but whatever, <laughs> there are plenty of black people forgotten realms that don't have to come from child. Um, it's also mentioned in the Magister and Empire of the Sands, both products from 1988. Uh, and then, so when, the, when you say mentioned, was it just like literally a literally line? Literally just like, like a, like it's just dropped in, in, into a sentence, like in the, you know, strange places like child or this magic item comes from child or huh. that kind of a thing. And so then in Dragon, uh, issue number nine, or 161 in 1990, Skip Williams was answering questions for Forgotten Realms. And one of the questions was, you know, would it be accurate to assume that Chult is an African setting? And Skip Williams answered, no, Chult is more akin to uh, Conan Doyle's Lost World, complete with dinosaurs, lost tribes, etc." Mm. And so I'm fairly certain that came direct from Ed, uh, it might have come from uh, James Louder because in 1992, uh, the novel, Ring, the Harper novel, Ring of Winter uh, by James Louder came out, and that is set largely in Chult. Oh, okay. So that was one of the pretty much the first time it was fleshed out. Right. And then in 93, um, the sort of RPG product by um, The Jungles of Chult by James Louder and Gene Rabe um, came out. And so. Uh, it's one of those occasions where uh, a location of the Front Realms might have had a map, uh, but it, you know it's been referenced a little bit in various you know products from X, Y, and Z. Uh, Ed had probably a vague idea of what it was about, but then some Ed, author, Ed Greenwood, of course, the yes. father of the Forgotten Realms. But then some other author got to kind of flesh it out and and create what was all going on there. It's so, interesting that it was like. Talked about, you could tell that maybe the designers, uh, uh, you know, may have an idea of what Chult was. It was like, oh, we got to get to that, you know. And it wasn't until they had the right opportunity to right. to really kind of dive in and understand what made it so interesting. Yeah. So, so in '93, uh, I picked I picked up the copy of the Jungles of Chult, and uh, you know, I, I couldn't resist it because it was this jungle scene with this uh, skeleton and armor, and behind it, looming in the background is a dinosaur. And it's like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm in. Dinosaurs <laughs> plus knights in shiny armor, I'm in. Right. <laughs> it's like every eight-year-old boy's yes. dream and girl's dream. Yeah, it's like, this is perfect. So uh, so the, the, the product, Chult is described in The Jungles of Chult and as sort of revealed in the Ring of Winter novel is a fascinating setting because, um, so it actually has, it's, it's this peninsula, this jungle peninsula that sticks out um, from uh, the continent of Faerun. And uh, peoples from way off to the west uh, in ancient times came in sailboats and made their way across the oceans uh, and arrived in Chult and populated that area. And those people came from not Mestica, or the sort of continent south of Aztica. I think there's there's an. It's presumed they came from another continent that's about um, or island that's south of that. And I forget what its name is. I think it starts with a K. Regardless, Caratori. No, it's not Caratori. <laughs> that's even way farther around. Okay. <laughs> there's a whole continent between there and Caratori. Um, and so uh, there were a number of different tribes that came over and. 
two of them were the Tabaxi and the Ashao. Uh, now, this is not Tabaxi, the cat people. This is Tabaxi with a capital T. And I wrote an article about this uh, for a sort of lore you should know article in Dragon Plus a while back. And it's basically the difference between Tabaxi and Tabaxi. <laughs> and, uh, and tobacco. Three, so, three separate things. So the, the original Jungles of Chult uh, product actually specifies that these Tabaxi are not the same as the cat people. So they, they, they knew that they were using the same word mm. at the time that they used it. It wasn't a mistake. Right. And as you mentioned in, in that, that uh, lore you should know article, uh, the Tabaxi cat people were introduced, you know, in the 70s. Right. Like it was the way, way earlier. Yeah. yeah. So uh, the, there's, there's some idea that maybe the Tabaxi um, tribe might have gotten its name from the Tabaxi people in the, the sort of, or the Tabaxi cat people in the Forgotten Realms that might have inhabited sort of that Mastika continent area. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the sort of explanation, in world explanation for why they might have the same name. So, um, there was at one point a war between the uh, Tabaxi and the Ashau, and the Ashau summoned some sort of uh, shadow giant thing, uh, this sort of creature of darkness to assault um, the the main city of the Tabaxi, which is called uh, Mesro. And it is repulsed from the city, and when it is repulsed from the city, it turns on its summoners and oh, starts no. attacking the Ashau. Yeah, it's never a good idea to no. summon a big, giant, evil thing. So uh, they lose that battle, and uh, the Tabaxi become kind of the the dominant uh, group of people in Chult. Uh, when that happens, um, there is one of the uh, Barre of of Mesro uh, that um, Barre are like these immortal paladin figures. Uh, they're these protectors of the, the city, um, sort of granted uh, immortality and some measure of divine power by the main god of the peoples of Chult. Um, and the, uh, the one of those Barre named Rasnisi uh, basically goes on a killing spree against the Ashau after they've been defeated and pushed off when their shadow giant's been chased away and all that kind of thing. Oh, so he's kind of like purging yes. the area. And uh, because of that, uh, he kind of like falls from grace. And so that's kind of the setting that you get um, in Chult is uh, there's Mesro, and Mesro's kind of this point of... Mesro's a very... Um, I'm going to use the word civilized city, but uh, um, it, it is... It's sort of like this... Uh, central capital of um, the people where um, religion is dispensed by their god of Tao and wisdom is dispensed by their priests and they have these fantastic buildings and um, this sort of uh, high culture and so on whereas much of the rest of Chult with the the exception of a few other settlements and cities around uh, lives more or less a um, a clan or tribal-based lifestyle out in the jungles of Chult. And, okay. And so it's a bit like, and, and, and people will travel from those places to uh, Mesro in a way that it's sort of like, you know, going to Mecca or Jerusalem or whatever. You know, there's, oh, okay. there's Uptau, who's the main god, but they have lots of local spirit gods and stuff like that, that they worship out there in the jungles. Um, right. And then they will go to, to Mesro. And this is, a, Mesro's a place of, 
you know, uh, learning and literature and song and art and, and um, you know, religion and so on. So it's, it's sort of like a great place to be. Is it, uh, is it on the coast? It's very near the coast of, of Chult, yes. And uh, Was it also welcoming to uh, outsiders? I mean, did people from the Sword Coast travel there, or was it more of uh, closed off? So there's the thing about Chult um, is that it's chock full of dinosaurs, even in, <laughs> <laughs> in the original right. version. And, and so you can think about it like sort of like a Jurassic Park version of, <laughs> of dinosaurs, too. I mean... And uh, the there's the, it's sort of this sense that it's a it's a lost continent, and so it's it's very isolated. There's lots of disease that if you're not if you're an outsider um, and you're not used to it, the diseases and so on that you succumb to, whether it's carried by a bug or in the water or that kind of a thing. But like the locals have got a yeah, bit the of locals an are, they're, they're to fine it. to it, you right. know, and so on. And uh, and so it's. And it's isolated because it's out on this peninsula where um, basically giant mountains uh, block access from the the land, and you have to kind of approach it by sea. And there's very few places around the the peninsula that you can approach by sea. And so, in some sense, it's a bit like Kong Island, oh, I see. where you know you're, you're you're heading towards it, and all you see are just giant cliffs everywhere. And there's just nowhere to land. And then a dinosaur comes and attacks you. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, that's a little bit why it feels a little bit more primordial is because it was, it was actually closed off from the rest of the right. continent. And um, when people sort of start to explore, and, uh, and, and they do, um, in fact, uh, uh, Baldur's Gate uh, sets up a, a fort uh, that sort of, uh, I think it's Fort Balduran or something like that. And uh, there are other a couple of you know isolated places where people land, and they start to try and set up trade. Mm. And what they want to basically do is is get the resources out of this place. So it's like a colonialism, uh, yes. uh, kind of analog. There. Uh, but they part of darkness type thing. Exactly. But they really really fail at the colonialism part because um, <laughs> <laughs> they they just they, they they can't really hack it in in the jungles. And so Chult, right. Chult remains essentially um, you know populated by the. The, the tabaxi or the Chultons at this point because it, basically everyone become all these different tribes are there but together they're basically the Chultons at this point they've kind of joined into a mass culture of worship of Batao and these spirits and so on and uh, and so they they but they, there's you know there's various types of woods on the island there's gemstones in the mountains there's sort of tribes of uh, isolated tribes of shield dwarves that are mining, um, you know, gems and metals and you know, mithril and uh, so on in the in the mountains. How the did uh, how did the dwarves get there? Well, that's a long and strange story. <laughs> that's what we're here for. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this this is this is going off on a, on a uh, side. Uh, bit, okay, but, sidebar. Um, so way back when, uh, the dwarves are primarily all types of dwarves are primarily uh, surrounded in an area of the Grand Realms called the Great Rift. And that is analogous to, say, like a giant Grand Canyons land area. Okay. And they're living uh, in the canyons, on the sides of the canyons, into the walls of the canyons, and under the ground, spreading out from that entire area. There are uh, various attempts to colonize over, and this is, I'm talking thousands and thousands of years, to colonize various areas outside of that. Um, they, uh, there are various dwarf wars where they go into war against one another. Oh, okay. And essentially, uh, there are outcasts and, um, those outcasts 
eventually sort of evolve into the people called the shield dwarves. So there's the, and that's how we get the distinction between the gold dwarves and the shield dwarves. Is these these people have separated for so long that they've they've become uh, ethnically distinct, um, you know, in culture and and so on and so forth. I see. And the shield dwarves uh, spread out all over the place. They create their own empires that rise and fall in various places. Uh, there were a bunch in the north that have all basically been wiped off the map um, with uh, the sort of dwarves returning to Gauntlegrim as like one of these sort of like, hey, we've reclaimed one of our homelands kind right. of a place. And, it's, um, and uh, some group of those dwarves uh, ended up traveling to Chult and finding uh, some sort of mystical flame in the mountain there and have been sort of hiding out in Cholt for a really long time, all by their lonesome. Did they come before or after the Tabaxi uh, emigrated there? Uh, gosh, I would probably say after, but I couldn't say for certain. Okay. I mean, I don't think that timeline of when they arrived is necessarily established. But that's just... The it's, all, it, 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 it's all way back when. Right, so... <laughs> These cultures all kind of come together and have made it this this inhospitable place their home. Yes, and there's also uh, Aracocra on the islands. There's oh. uh, there's things called uh, uh, terra folk, uh, which are basically um, you know pterodactyl people. Um, Ooh, really? Yeah. <laughs> there's there's all kinds of wacky things in Jolt. Um, yeah, and then the, and then dinosaurs. You mentioned like what kind of dinosaurs are they all carnivorous? Well, so Tyrannosaurus Rex. Are they? Is it? This uh, was written in the early nineties, uh, and so there was a lot of holdover uh, still of um, understanding dinosaurs through the lens of oh well, they all lived in the jungle, and how many? What kind of dinosaurs lived together? Well, you know that would take looking up uh, an encyclopedia or going to the library trip. But I seen pictures where there's all kinds of dinosaurs living there, so they all live there. Uh, okay, so it's like a little bit of a land of the lost <laughs> yeah, idea. Every dinosaur, right? <laughs> they all live in the jungle. Doesn't matter what kind of dinosaurs. Doesn't they matter all. if we think they lived, you know, hundreds of millions of years apart, right? Or on matter. the plains or a desert, or you know, like this this dinosaur might have, you know, liked a cold habitat, but we don't care. They're in a hot. They're jungle. in a jungle, right? Yeah. Got Okay, so it's basically just this mishmash of yeah. dinosaur species that it, you may know and may not know. And yeah, it's very much Jurassic Park in that sense. And Dungeon Masters can just be like, hey, I like this dinosaur, let's throw that right. in there. Right. Okay, that makes sense. Um, so when we, and also when we say about the jungles of Chult, like, uh, is this like Amazonian level of rainforest where it, you can't really walk from one place to the next without hacking it with a machete? Like, is that the entire area? Yeah, most of Chult is like that. There, there are vast areas of, of uh, volcanic mountains and um, huge wetlands and, and so on. But a lot of it is uh, really... Um, Thick rainforest with you know enormous trees and huge undergrowth and and that kind of a thing, and uh, there there are you know occasionally the the hints of like some ancient road from some point where uh, you know a Cholton civilization or going even farther back um, a Yanti or Saruk civilization um, might have been in that place. Oh really? Um, yeah. So the Yanti are another population that have been kind of hiding out in. Chult for a long time, uh, and they are remnants of the great sort of Saruk Empire. And Saruk, if you don't know, if, which you <laughs> probably don't, if you haven't been paying a lot of attention for our realms, is <laughs> one of the um, three creator races that are like, and, and that. And then you're talking like ancient history of the Forgotten Realms, so right? Like, like the very Aracocra was another one. Is that correct? They weren't. They were the Kokri, and so they were different than the modern day Aracocra. 
Um, but they uh, they were uh, in the similar way that Saruk aren't analogous to Yanti exactly. They were slightly different. Um, there's also uh, the sort of a frog race whose name I'm for blanking on at the moment. The Bak- Bakshi, Bak- Bakiri, mm. something like that. And uh, and they were um, they're sort of analogous to what are now bullywugs and Got things it. like that. Um, maybe even Gripply, but. Um, those peoples basically evolved from the ancient history version of uh, like the Saruk and the Kokri and so on. Interesting. Okay. All right. So there's all of these different groups happening in Chult. Uh, and you mentioned that there's smaller settlements here and there and they're mostly tribal. Um, are they... Uh, uh, do they trade with each other? Or is it more like a nation, or is it still kind of like a city-state type thing that's um, happening there? Well, again, in the sort of second edition slash third edition version of Chult, uh, they they do trade. They do. I mean, there is sort of inter-clan warfare at times. Um, I mean, it's it's like anything else where there's lots of groups of people that sort of isolate themselves. Um, even though they're all technically kind of beholden to Uptau and might make a pilgrimage to Mesro and so on, they are their own self-governing groups. And so, of course, they have problems with one another. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you killed my brother, so we'll have a generations-long war over <laughs> you know, that kind of a thing. Right. Um, so, uh, and, and they're, that's kind of the state of, of Chult uh, and, and how it interacts with the realms for a long period of time. It's this, this sort of mysterious continent where you can go and have these these weird adventures, find strange treasures, and bring them back, uh, and and then you can interact with. If you get to the city of Mesro, um, the, these sort of fascinating people that have this entirely different religion and outlook on life than you do. Um, uh, Abtao's symbol is a maze, and so uh, his worship has a lot to do with basically self improvement and enlightenment, and the symbol of that is sort of like this, you know, watering the labyrinth and mm. kind of uh, self discovery and things like that. So mm. it's, it's, it's all sort of weird and interesting stuff. Interesting. It's got like a Westworld. <laughs> Did you watch? <laughs> I didn't realize that the, the maze was such a, yeah. you know, a self discovery type thing. Yeah. That's, that's so, interesting. So then uh, fourth edition comes along and various things change. Uh, the it's, what's said is that the, the city of Mesro, uh, that Uptau basically abandons his people, and the city of Mesro is destroyed. It's kind of sunk into the earth, and is put into ruins. And Did that have to do with the sundering or the spell plague? Like Why, why did well, Uptau so go away? Uh, that's part of the spell plague, and the story behind exactly why Uptau went away isn't entirely clear. Like, there's some sense that, that he was angry at his people for some reason. Um, there are various things that are described about Abtau in, in books as you go, proceed through 2nd and 3rd edition where he's kind of uh, mentioned or described. And uh, you get the sense that he's a little bit of an Old Testament deity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he isn't, he's, he's has a good alignment, but, uh, you know, and he cares for his people, but, um, they, you know, he doesn't want them to step out of, out of line. He certainly doesn't want them to do anything like, um, you know, Rasnisi did or, you know, uh, deal with a Shao. This sort of a Shao is, is, is a later sort of embodied that, that shadow giant thing that was summoned by the Ashao, the tribe, is given the name Ashao and oh. is then sort of this um, alternate deity figure that some people in Chult start to worship. And is it still around? It, yes. 
<laughs> so they all right. So that's kind of interesting yeah. that it was summoned, it turned on its people, and then it's still like, by the way, I'm still around, I'm gonna right. mess stuff up. Right. And well, and cool. so um, the exact uh, nature of what happened there in the fourth edition, as described in the fourth edition book, is not entirely clear. Um, there's descriptions of floating islands and other weird creatures that pop up into the area because they've kind of been brought there from. Um, uh, a beer, which is sort of the, the sort of mirror world or, or conjoined world, depending on what time it is, of the Forgotten Realms, and uh, and and so it, it's it was a sort of lost world place that was becoming more in contact with the world. There were more Chultons um, venturing out into the world in places like Waterdeep and stuff like that. There were more people going to Chult and exploring it trading and so on. Uh, and then 4th edition basically kind of uh, bombed it back into that um, more lost world sense where uh, it even talks about how, you know, all those tribal peoples that were living outside of Mesro um, were almost obliterated and uh, they were sort of um, thrust to the fringes of Chult. Okay. By uh, kind of unknown force. It's not exactly clear. Uh, so what ends up sort of happening with um, with the storyline in 5th edition is a little different. The explanation for what happened to Mesro is a little different. Uh, the reason why all the people are now living on the fringes of the island are, are a little different. Mm. Um, and a little different meaning the writers kind of altered the story a little bit or that the legends about it have been mis- reinterpreted? It, more the, the latter. So, so the, the facts are essentially the same. The people mm. are more living on the fringes of, of Chult at this point. They are sort of centered around the settlements on the coast. Uh, the, you know, Mesro is still a ruin. Um, but there's there are there are secrets there to be found, which I think uh, we'll probably reveal in in some some later products. I don't know if I want to jump into it right now, but sure. yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, but it, uh, you know the uh, the idea that it's um, covered in a ton of uh, floating islands of rock and so on. Uh, it's not a ton. I mean, it said there were there were many, but how many is many? Is it five? Is it ten? Is it a hundred? So uh, those still exist to some degree. Um, it's 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 largely as we've described a place with these Arakokra and Yanti and these forgotten empires and lost civilizations and um, you yeah, it's know, got strange all, it's got people. The makings of a of a, a great D and D setting because of all those things. Like there's just. You know, the, the yeah. dinosaurs rampaging through and yeah. even just, you know, that Ishao. Yeah, I forgot to mention the uh, the Batiri. Oh, and that's what it's, it's Batrichi is, or Bat, Batrachi is is the frog people. But there's the Batiri. <laughs> so the Batrachi are, the, are one of the uh, creator races. But the, the Batiri, I, I think it's Batiri, are uh, goblins in Chalton. So oh. uh, there are these savage goblins. And so uh, savage goblins in that uh, they are not like goblins on the mainland. They have a totally different culture. Um, they uh, they worship sort of local spirits and stuff like that. They are cannibals, unlike uh, goblins typically are in, in Forgotten Realms oh. in general. They eat um, their own people? Uh, yes, and anything else they can get their hands on. Interesting. And, uh, you know, there aren't hobgoblins and bugbears. So when we talked, I think, in a previous lore, you should know about how um, you know, bugbears kind of the goblin or hobgoblins yeah. kind of like 
club together with bugbears and hobgoblins or goblins and, and kind of create a new culture. Um, and they kind of share that shared culture with their shared gods and so on. These goblins have kind of gotten out of the thumb of Maglubiet and so on, and they're doing oh, their own okay. crazy thing. And it's pretty, it's pretty crazy. Yeah, it just seems like there's so many different threads you could pull on as a dungeon master or a player if you were uh, going to play in this area. Yeah, in yeah. And there's there's just tons of fun little things. I mean, I think you know at some point it will we'll get into things like that. But like. There's uh, there was an exploration into Chult by uh, some guy, and he um, you know he failed in his exploration, but he he was raising he wanted to raise a statue to basically I think himself or his son I forget whoever it was, but it's this statue in the middle of the jungle that um is this talking statue that will say these these things to you if you um, do things with it, and you know that was ages ago when he sort of failed in his quest or whatever. So now you, you can wander through the jungles of Cholt and find this giant talking statue, oh, you know, no. as like this weird relic of the past. And in some way it's a bit like lost, right? Like, you know, what, a polar bear? Like, what's going on yeah, here? Why is this here? <laughs> oh, that's and, cool. And so there's lots of little elements like that that you can oh, play with. I didn't with, even think yeah. about lost, but yeah, yeah, that's a great way of thinking about it because there's so many different things that like now your, your players might have to try to figure out why they all make sense. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Awesome, cool. Well, I uh, definitely got my mind turning here on uh, on things happening within Schultz. So thank you for that, um, and thank you again to uh, Buddy Unger for uh, giving us that topic. Um, if you guys want to come up with some more lore, you should know topics we want to cover. Um, feel free to message me. I'm at Greg Tito, and uh, of course, you can always ask Matt. Awesome. Uh, yeah, please do. And you're at what? At Cernet. S E R N E T T. Perfect. Awesome. Thank you so much, and uh, we'll have some more lore coming at you next week. All right, well, that was a really good uh, uh, segment. That's lovely. <laughs> uh, I really liked hearing from uh, Jeremy, Matt, and or Chris. I'm not sure which one it was, but it was amazing. Uh, and we got to hear so much about X, Y, and Z. <laughs> so good. <laughs> we are time travelers here on the uh, <laughs> official Dungeons & Dragons podcast. Uh, but right now, we are definitely in the present. Yes. We have Kate Irwin, art Woo! director. Dungeons and Dragons. Hello. Hello. And we are going to call up uh, uh, Justin from WizKids. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Hello. Hey, Justin. How you doing? It's Greg. Good. Good. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, we hear you great. Great. We are here with uh, Shelley. Hi, Justin. Hey, Shelley. And Kate Irwin. Hello. Hey, hey Kate. So, uh, Justin, we wanted to have you on, uh, A, to talk about uh, 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 your experience and fun playing Dungeons and Dragons, uh, as well as uh, your work with Kate in putting together the miniatures lines uh, from, from WizKids. Sure thing. Great. Um, so, actually, I just found out about this. I didn't realize, but you used to work here at Wizards yeah. of the Coast. Mm -hmm. I did. I did. It's, it seems like yesterday, but I think it was 15 years ago. Or no. Something. No. Really? I, I, it was I, that seriously? long ago? I think it was 15 years, Kate or Shelley. Wait, <laughs> you start you started working here 15 well, or like the the last time you so, were an employee here was 15 years ago. Sorry, I, I think I started working there about 20 years ago. I worked wow. there uh, on and off for five years wow. with a little short hiatus, but yeah, it's been that long. Wow, it's crazy. Yeah, it's not. It feels like yesterday. Do you have any <clears> good <throat> stories from? The old wizards. <laughs> <laughs> that you can share on a podcast. 
what? Tell Isn't us. there a website for that? Is there? Uh, I don't know. Uh, yeah, yeah, there is. <laughs> Oh, so what did we'll you? What later. did you? Uh, just you know, for for those of us who has been here for fifteen years, what uh, what have you? Uh, what, what were you doing when you were here? So I started off um, as project manager for Dungeons and Dragons, as as uh, luck would have it. No way. And uh, I moved upstairs to the brand team when there was a brand team, um, and worked on a uh, beloved miniatures game called Chainmail and Magic. Then I took, uh, I worked on Pokemon for a little bit, took a break, went to another company, came back and worked on Magic Online for the rest of my time there. Yeah. That's so cool. A little bit of yeah, everything. I worked on a lot. So you, were you a D&D fan when you started working here? I was. Oh, so that is like a little bit of a dream oh, job. Oh yeah, total dream job. Dream, uh, total dream job. Oh, is this the interview, or are we going to? Oh no! Yeah, oh a, yeah, we're right in. This Sorry. is as good as it's gotten, Justin. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what? Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> this is like warm up. No, this is Greg and I at our peak. <laughs> I feel like that's the first time that happened. I listen to so many podcasts like Nerdist <laughs> and uh, like uh, uh, WTF, but from Mark Maron, and there are every once in a while a guest is like, "Oh, is this? Has it already started is this yet? Thing on? Is it already starting? And then, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So yeah, uh, uh, what were we? You were just talking about what, yeah, what, what, being a D and D fan, like so you played before you started working here. Yeah, yeah. So when I was, um, I'm gonna call it fifth grade. Uh, I got notified, or somehow my mom found out about Dungeons and Dragons at the library, some organized activity at the Orange Library in uh, Ohio, and she dropped me off. And I literally think it was because she needed babysitters, and yep. she didn't really want me to stay at home alone. And uh, I plopped into this game um, that uh, I was like a stranger. I just showed up and uh, they hand me a character. Um, I don't remember his name. I think it was Trius. He was a dwarf thief. Um, and we were in the middle of the uh, G3, Hall of the Fire Giant Kings. First encounter. And that started it all for me. I remember uh, kind of vividly, uh, at least that first encounter, um, because I think the rest of it ended very poorly. But uh, <laughs> we were in that fir- in the hall, great hall, and uh, the the hall is composed of this really long uh, kind of uh, you know fire giant hall with columns with dwarves holding up the columns, and it was going very poorly for the party. And I posed as a dwarf holding up a column and made my hide check or hide in shadows check back in the day, and I lived. But no one else did, so it was a, it was a short it was a short adventure. But more than more important than anything else, I met literally my best friends for life that day. Oh. And uh, it's it's hard to sometimes identify where you meet your best friend, but best friends. But um, Mike Cavada, Matt Cavada, Byron and Brad, I still talk to him to this day. In fact, they were I'm here. sure Mike's probably going to call me today and say, "Hey, how'd that podcast go?" Because we still <laughs> talk, you know, 35 years later. Wait, Matt. Matt works here. Yeah. He does. So That's Matt, so funny. Matt, yeah, Matt. It's actually funny. Matt, myself, and Mark Rosewater all went to the same high school. No. So, and we all ended up at Wizard somehow. So you, which was Yeah, how did really that happen? Strange. 500 people in a high school and three of us end up working for Wizards. Across the country. Across the country. That's insane. Yeah, yeah, yeah crazy. Wow. Crazy time. Did you guys play, so you guys played D&D together, that, that same crew? I didn't play with Rosewater. Uh, Rosewater um, was two years ahead of me, but um, certainly with Mike Cavada and Matt Cavada, they were brothers. And uh, best, my bike is my one of my best friends. And uh, 
yeah, my, my other good friends, Byron and Brad, all started that day with our DM, Phil. It, it's, it's ironic because I looked up Phil like we were trying to hunt him down like 30 years later and we found him. And uh, he's like some VP at Oracle. And the only way we could get to him was uh, through LinkedIn. <laughs> and I go, Phil, it's Justin from D&D, Orange Library. And his response was, wow. And then that was that was he was like, holy shit. You know, holy crap. And, that's OK. Uh, you can swear. It's all right. Because okay. that, that I mean, that, that, that's worthy of a shit. I oh, think. for sure. Yeah. yeah, it's uh, so it's really, really, really interesting. And that, you know, more than just kind of the adventuring and having fun playing a game and laughing and laughing at your friends and with your friends, like establishing some of the, my best friends of my entire life uh, was was that day, that day at Orange Library Sunday when I was in fifth grade. That's amazing. I love it. You guys should celebrate that friend anniversary. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love it. Got so it. did you watch Stranger Things and did you feel like that was like your group? Did that speak uh, to you? So our group was a little different. It wasn't. So Phil was an older guy, older DM. He was like in ninth or 10th or 11th grade. So he kind of could form a story really well and tell a story. But yeah, Stranger Things was our little group and including the little excursions into the woods and mm -hmm. running around, you know, throwing stars were big, big back then. So we had our throwing stars and we'd go adventure in the woods. It was great. It was Stranger Things. There were times that I was choked up in it just because of all the memories that kind of it evoked. Yeah, you were not alone. A lot of people had that feeling. Yeah, that's awesome. And look at you now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Look at me now. Get yeah. to work on D&D again. Once again. That's pretty fantastic. And you get to work with Kate, which is like a dream <laughs> for most of, of us. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> nice. So we, we were talking about, uh, uh, you know, the more specific uh, monster lines that, that we can we can certainly talk about being in stores now. I mean, I think uh, everybody when they when they look at uh, the miniatures that you guys are producing nowadays, they just get immediately transported into a fantasy realm. Like we use, I mean, I, I just love having them around and, and using them in my game. Uh, but, I mean, we also want to talk about the process of making those, uh, uh, too. So, uh, yeah, uh, we, I don't know who the, who the best person is to start talking about that. But, Kate, what, 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 how do you first get involved with uh, uh, what miniatures are, are produced here? Um, to begin with, we get a list from the guys at WizKids. And um, they propose a, a number of creatures that they want to have in the, in the next set. Um, so, of course, for Monster Menagerie, it was a whole bunch of monsters. <laughs> um, and um, we uh, make sure that we have reference for everything that they want to do. And um, there might be a little bit of discussion back and forth about whether, um, whether we really want to have X, Y, or Z in that set. Um, so we just make that decision and then make sure they have the reference, and they go off and start making beautiful things to send hmm. to me. Huh. Justin, that sound about right? Do you guys make beautiful things? It does. Well, it horrible. Does. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's really a labor of love for us. Um, you know, I, you know I, I don't know if you know, but we alternate storyline, non-storyline, every other set. And so um, I'll back up a little bit that, that Watsi's kind enough to invite us out once a year to kind of kick off the next storyline. And that usually is the foundation of one of the sets, the primary sets. Mm -hmm. And then, and then we, we fill it in with uh, a monster menagerie. We're on 
uh, Monster Menagerie 2 just released a couple couple weeks ago. But yeah, the process is identical to what Kate said. Kate said. Um, we go back and forth. Um, you know, we have kind of a little bit of logic on how we put a set together and what the focal point is. But in the end, we were players and we're like, how would we like to open up these boosters and what do we want to get? And, you know, that that's how it's born. Nice. So, uh, yeah, you mentioned a little bit, there's a little bit of a, a rhyme and reason to which monsters you pick. Uh, but, yeah, talk a little bit about that. What is, what is your process for narrowing that down? So um, your listeners may know that we sell a randomized product, so which means you open up a pack and there's four random creatures in a box. Some of them are inserted more often than others. So as a player or as a DM, we know that the things that I'm going to get a bunch of duplicates of, we don't want to just waste that slot. We want to make getting a duplicate like valuable so we'll start with what we call army builders in the common level so when you get your second or third or fourth goblin or kobold you're not disappointed in fact you're kind of excited (laughs) because you hey i need five of these for my next adventure so it's kind of cool that i got multiples Um, and then we start building the list to kind of a crescendo where we put um, less frequent uh, character classes and kind of the higher rarity um tieflings half dragons things like that and then we kind of cap it with these what i call the boss monsters to some extent you know beholder sits at the top somewhere and uh some of the named monsters sit up top and then we have another skew called the case incentive and that case incentive is kind of a uh what we call a utility slot and what we've been experimenting with over the last couple of years really really well is doing set pieces and the set piece for this last um, uh, set revolved around a wagon. We've always wanted to do a wagon. And Watsi teed up this wagon that is so awesome. It was Esmeralda, Esmeralda's wagon. And we saw this thing. We're like, oh, my God. And so what we did is first we were going to make it all. You can open up the wagon and see the inside. But we realized the scale was a little off and we couldn't make figures fit inside the wagon. So we took the wagon and built around it. We built a campsite. So think of it as a gypsy campsite, right. you know, fires, sleeping bags, um, you know, cauldrons, uh, knapsacks, and really built out this beautiful little set piece so um, you could, uh, you know, use it as kind of a self-contained adventure. That's cool. I have to yeah. say, when uh, 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 some friends of mine found out that was the set, they all came a-knocking. A- a- oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Uh, people like Matt Mercer and Liam O'Brien from Critical Role, they both were like, hey, uh, can, can, can I get one of those? Because they yeah. were super excited about uh, that set piece and how it was going to relate uh, to playing not just Curse of Strahd, because that's kind of where it was uh, uh, devised from, uh, but then also just, yeah, right, the that's utility of cool. having a camp uh, in miniature form uh, for playing D&D was very cool. I love that idea. Yeah. And that was it, born it was from a piece of art that, that uh, you had commissioned, right? Um, the, the wagon itself was part of the concept push. Um, and then we we did use it in the in the adventure as well. Um, but that was a case where this piece of concept art, um, WizKids was able to use it um, to make their pieces, and then I was able to send it off to artists to get finished pieces of art uh, from the same thing. Nice. That yeah, it was sense. really good. Really good. A little, it was scary. I mean, doing set pieces as D and D figures is a little scary, but the reception has been so yeah. strong. So, so are you doing more? Did you say you're going to do more of the set? Uh, we are. We, well, I can't talk about the next one, but the next oh, one's we're doing cool. more. 
Oh, the next one's cool. There's always a case dog. incentive. So. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Um, yeah, this one, this one, it really um, made all of my dollhouse dreams come that's true. That's kind of what I'm yeah. thinking. Um, yeah. It's, little, uh, little books and backpacks and... Oh. Uh, Hillary has to show you these. I know. <laughs> Hillary's holding out. <laughs> <laughs> That's Hillary Ross, who does uh, licensing for, for Dungeons & Dragons and works a lot with, uh, with AKA WizKids. AKA Hillary holding out. Hillary holding out <laughs> That's Ross. That's her new name. <laughs> <laughs> That's her wrestling name. Yeah. <laughs> it's ironic because Hillary is super generous, so. <laughs> I know. I know. So, uh, so yeah, you mentioned it came from a, uh, that this particular thing came from a piece of concept art. But when you're uh, commissioning art, uh, Kate, do you like think about ahead of time things that would look good in three dimensions and kind of mention it to these guys, or is it is it more collaborative? Um, it's probably it's more collaborative. I think that especially for the things that are are from the story guide, um, there are already visuals that are attached to those. And again, I use those visuals to make the art for the book. And um, other licensors will use those visuals to make assets for their their game or their product. Um, but usually, WizKids is one of the the first on board. So um, because their lead time is a little bit longer than a lot of the other licensors that we work with, as well as the RPG itself. Um, so. So they kind of drive things a little bit. And, and we know that there are certain things that will be, um, will be superstars in, in any setting. Mm-hmm. So, um, so those are kind of like the first things that, that go in there. And then, um, and then, as Justin was saying, we kind of we fill in uh, around the outside um, with other things that you just know are perennial favorite sort of things, but maybe are being touched on. Um, also in that set, so that makes um, sense. Does it? Yeah. I felt like I kind of petered off there at the end. Yeah, because well, okay. yeah, right. Because there's always going to be stuff that isn't involved with the uh, overarching storyline, but that's yeah, still but that are fans. still important and yeah. that we haven't done yet and and are interesting to fans. Yeah. Makes yeah. sense to me. Makes sense to me. Now, Justin, is there uh, uh, one thing I do want to clarify, though, is the case incentive, because I'm not sure. We, we use that word a lot around here, but I want to make sure everybody, uh, our listeners know exactly what that means. What, what, what does that mean? So um, it's, a, it's a loose definition, but basically uh, our product is packed out in bricks of eight, and there are four bricks of eight, which means 32 boosters in a case. Um, when distribu- distribution buys it and when retailers buy it, if they buy a case, they can buy one case incentive per case because we think that's about the right ratio plus or minus i mean it's it's very loosey-goosey and it's not a uh, a hard fast rule um but it's just a incentive piece that if you're purchasing dnd and selling dnd you have the option to buy these case incentives to sell along with your miniatures got it right so then so that some retailers will have more case incentives than others because of the um, amount of volume that they do. So it's uh, yeah, it can be kind of hard to find. Is that is that a good thing uh, from your oh, perspective? It's, it's actually it's actually not that hard to find. I mean, if you carry D and D, our thought was more along the if you're selling to a dungeon master, yeah, you're going to want to have these things. If you're selling to players, um, the set pieces aren't kind of the key driver for players, um, at least from our viewpoint. Um, obviously players might want to have a wagon and collect miniatures, but the DM is really the kind of the heart and soul of this, this, uh, these case incentives. 
that they're setting up that that encounter or that setting. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, you have a, a, a in addition to, to well, let's talk a little bit more about Monster Menagerie. Was there something that really touched on uh, your specific fun of Dungeons and Dragons that you really liked about this set? So I I haven't gotten to play D anD D for a while, and I've been looking for a game, but. Um, well, next time you come up to Seattle, we got to make sure you play. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. And uh, I'm looking for a good Roll20 game. So if anyone's out there listening, I'd love to get in a Roll20 game. But um, the uh, the top end of the, uh, the the spectrum is where I like to live, and that's the Beholder. The Beholder that we did, uh, Xanthan, like like the the response we got from doing that, like kind of our, our godfather of Beholders. Um, really kind of struck a chord with people. And that picture and that minis was, was popping up over social media everywhere. And um, it was just nice to kind of relive a little bit of that story, um, you know, from my childhood. Uh, you know, he's the kind of uh, crime boss of the beholders. <laughs> and, uh, it was it was awesome like to do that. him and see everyone love him. So. That's cool. What about you, Kate? Was there one that you saw that you were like, oh, that was really exactly the way the artist put oh. it together or one something that you really liked? Oh, Man, um, I'm putting you on the spot. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, every every set there are always favorites that I have, um, and and sometimes it's not even something fantastic like that. Like um, I have uh, a little, uh, I don't even know what the package was called, but it has it has just four adventures in it. It's not um, it's not a randomized thing. You can see exactly what's in it. But I love every one of those characters. Mm. Um, and then there are other things like, uh, um, oh gosh, in the in the giant set, um, Chief Ga, it's pretty <laughs> yeah. pretty spectacular, um, and uh, but it's like I said, it's not always like the big set piece that that gets me. Sometimes it's just like, oh, I love the way that that wizard has um, the translucent magical effect around their hand or, or little things like that. Oh, so it's the details that, yeah. uh, that yeah. drive you. Yeah, that makes sense. It's pretty amazing how detailed they can be. Oh, it's crazy. Yeah. And um, when we're going back and forth with the art, um, you know, it's it's all digitalized. It's 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 2D um, digital um, with a... They're, they're working with 3D, but, but what I'm seeing is just uh, the flattened art from different angles. And um, there are times where I'm looking at it and I'm like, that looks really great here, but how are they going to actually realize this in mm-hmm. plastic? And then we get the set here and it's just amazing, the amount of detail and, and the amount of um, character that you get in the, in the different pieces too. Yeah, but that's a crazy process to think about turning something that's a, a, a 2D piece of art into something 3D. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, how, how exactly do you guys do that, Justin? <laughs> so it, it all starts out with Kate, Kate and Shelley touched upon this earlier, what the development cycle. And, you know, given that actually three of us at WizKids worked at WotC at one time. And so I think we speak a very common language, which is really good. And we understand the process almost innately. That makes sense. Um, but when you turn over the art and they give us ample time um, of all of our licensee, D&D gives us the time that we need to do great things. And so we take the reference um, and sometimes you have a front shot, sometimes you have a turnaround 
just depends. And we start sculpting, and we sculpt in ZBrush. Um, so what all is of our sculpting for uh, ZBrush is a program. Uh, think of it as a CAD program, but for artists and for sculptors. Um, okay. And it, it allows you to draw polygon-shaped figures and then paint them. And so we start in what we call a T-pose. So we take the character and we pose them like, uh, you know, uh, uh, in, in a arms T. Arms out to the yeah. side. Arms we, out, legs out. We all just put our hands out because we, we knew <laughs> what you were, you were saying. <laughs> uh, yeah, Da Vinci's, Da Vinci's T-pose. Yes, basically. that's what I was thinking too. Yeah, and, the man. Um, and so everything starts there. And, uh, you know, we start iterating in kind of gray models and we say, OK, is this the detail that we want? Um, is this the facial expression that we want? And then once that's approved, we go to kind of a posed look um, that that T poses basically rigged electronically. So it's like a mannequin. And mm -hmm. so we can start moving it around. And so we start moving it around and deploy it into the position that we want. And then we paint it, um, whether, you know, solid colors, translucent effects. Um, and then we send it to Watsi in three or four different views so that they can see everything around it. So it's pretty cool. We do a lot. We do about 1,500 sculpts a year. So we're probably the largest digital sculpting studio out there. Um, yeah. just given the nature of our business, but what's really, really, really cool about digital more than anything, um, is one time for approval and time for changes is really fast. So we're able to implement changes quickly, but there's an added benefit of continuity. So let's say we want to take that wizard that we just sculpted the human male wizard and redeploy him and we can put him in a different pose with a different staff or a wand the base model is identical. And so you get this continuity through the line, even between sets. Um, as we go back and pick the wizard or the dragon from set one and we put them in set seven, it's the same dragon but bigger or different pose. So there's this added benefit of continuity that we get that we love. And it helps us work fast and eases the licensing approvals on Watsi <laughs> and really kind of improves the quality of the product overall. Very cool. So I've gotten to work with Kate through the years on things. We have a little thing we're working on now that you helped with, and Justin, you too. But um, what I'm always fascinated by is the comments that you provide. Like the, we were talking about the detail, but like the arm needs to be a little bit thicker for this race or like the skin tone or like I mean your head is filled with so much of this detail about like all of these fantastical races and classes and beings and monsters and creatures that you just you you are you're so thoughtful about everything that you're making sure that it's as real as it can be <laughs> as real as something as that real isn't as it real can. yeah can be yes but yeah. it's like it's just it's amazing to me. I don't really have a question there. It's a <laughs> statement. I don't know. Like, I'm just like, well, wow. Like every time Kate provides feedback, I'm like, yeah, wow. Um, so it's it's not all just in my head, though, because um, that's why sometimes it takes a while for me to get feedback because I'm looking for more reference mm -hmm. to make sure that um, that we are staying consistent. Um, you know, I, and I, I really appreciate WizKids for the way that they – they do go through the process with us um, because if I, whenever I say, oh, you know, that arm looks a little thin, that, right. that doesn't blah, blah, whatever, um, it's like, oh, okay, and, you know, five days later, 
there's a new one in my arm. in my inbox and <laughs> or or sometimes if if I'm just like looking at it from the wrong angle or something like that, you know, they'll say, "Oh, actually, um, this is blah blah blah," and and so it's it's always a back and forth, uh, push and pull between uh, between us. We are working for the same uh, the same goal in the end, which is really cool minis. Right. So it helps that you're all fans too. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Do your uh, do your artists ever get like uh, the, the artists that do they get a kick out of the fact that sometimes their art is turned yes. into a mini? They love it, um, especially for giants like um, uh, Chris Ron and Tyler Jacobson did a lot of the concept work for the giant set um, for the the giant storyline, and then um, that of course was used to make the the minis from, and um, at, yeah, we. I think we ended up getting a pretty complete set of the giants for them because, <laughs> I mean, can you imagine how cool that yeah. would be to to yeah. draw something that you know you're here for three weeks and you've drawn all of these things and then a year later come back and it's like oh that thing that you drew in black and white well here you go you can put it on your mantle or your bedstand or whatever yeah. wherever or your minis go or play with or it or play with it. <laughs> Especially with the Giants, I mean those those things were uh, so I, I think integral to at least my thinking of how they uh, compare to different sizes, as mm-hmm. well as the differences between the, the different giant types. Um, yeah, it really really hammered in home, and which is a great segue to talk about. Uh, 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 I'm tooting my own horn that that was a great segue as I'm doing it. <laughs> wow! Uh, but assault of the Giants. Yeah, I mean, it uses a lot of those sculpts in in the the. the uh, uh, the minis that are uh, shipped with the game is that that's correct right justin so yeah it's a uh, funny story there <laughs> um we were actually trying to make the game with the actual figures that were in the uh rpg release the uh the the collectible miniatures game um and so what we wanted to do is just use those same size giants and as we started specking it out, we realized the box was going to be something like three feet by two <laughs> feet by, by <laughs> to hold all those giants. Oh, well, that would be so a problem. So what we had to do mm-hmm. is scale everything down really quick and uh, make them an appropriate size for Assault. And um, it came out really well. We did something very cool with Assault this time, which was we released a painted premium edition version and an unpainted version at the same time. And uh, the response has been really, really good. Um, Andrew, the designer, did a great job of the game. The Giants just uh, what I call table presence. So when you're playing it, the presence on the table makes people stop by and say, what is that? Yeah. And, uh, and that's that's what it's all about. So it came out really well. Cool. Yeah. And for those uh, for listeners who may not uh, uh, know that Salt of the Giants is a uh, board game that, uh, uh, as you said, uh, your designer came from WizKid's side. But, uh, you know, we had some some input as far as the stories and things go here. Uh, but that was all that was all pretty much you guys. Yeah. Yeah, we did. Uh, it was, I think, one of our first attempts at kind of uh, flying solo or at least solo in so much that we we're working with Watsi very closely on it, um, as we do on just about everything. So. Um, yeah, and did you, what were the numbers on, or not, not necessarily the numbers, but like what were the ratios on uh, unpainted copies versus the painted copies, just out of curiosity? So hard to, hard to, I, I wouldn't want to go into print numbers, but we, we printed quite a few of both. Um, the painted version, uh, surprise, surprise, sold out in days. And we, right before launch, we ordered a reprint. So we're now filling the channel again in the next couple of weeks with, with more copies of that. Very so, exciting. 
did very, very good. Yeah, that's cool. All right, good. So people, if you didn't get your uh, your unpainted version, there might be one on the way to your local store. Your pre-painted mm-hmm. version. You yes, pre-painted. right. Sorry, I said unpainted. I meant pre-painted. Yeah. Uh, right. And I still, I mean, I apologize. I have Souls of the Giants, and I've been trying to get together people to do it. Some people canceled on me. <gasps> you know, right? Like, I had, like, a game group all set up to play, and then uh, they, 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 they couldn't do it. So I still haven't played, but I'm, it's, it's eagerly awaited on my shelf. With your minis. With my minis. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's uh, cool. Exciting. Uh, cool. Uh, and so, yeah, you also have another line of uh, uh, products coming out. Uh, your Nolzors. Uh, I'm going to get the name wrong. How do you, how do you say it? Uh, Nolzors <laughs> Marvelous Miniatures. Marvelous Miniatures. Right. So, yeah, talk a little bit about, uh, about what those are. Um, so we may, we've been in the business of making pre-painted miniatures for 15 years now, and uh, we started toying with the idea of what about unpainting our miniatures. And so uh, we approached Wizards and said, hey, what do you think about an unpainted line? Um, an unpainted line is targeted a little bit differently in that they're visible uh, purchases, so they're not randomized. And they are a little bit less expensive than purchasing uh, a bunch of miniatures, pre-painted miniatures, and sifting through them or buying singles. So we came up with 30, 30, 40 some figures and decided to do them uh, unpainted. What we did is we took all the basic classes and all their primary and secondary races and uh, basically are releasing every class and every primary and secondary race um, in both low level or what, what we call uh, intermediate level and advanced level. So when you go buy a pack of human male fighter, you'll get an intermediate level human male fighter. And along with him, you'll get an advanced level human male fighter. And by level, Again, you mean like as far as the quality of their equipment? Correct. Correct. Interesting. Okay. So you it's like... Them- yeah, you can get a pack and then you can level up with them. That's neat. Correct. So um, we kind of target it anywhere between third and tenth level because I think that's where the thrust of the playing is happening. You know, up to twelfth level. Once you get to kind of high level campaigns, things go crazy in terms of equipment. But we tried to hit this sweet spot where you know, as your character develops, you're going to want to change his short sword to a broadsword. And so we we made the logical assumptions and made an advanced level character. It came out really, really, really good, and we took, we took a um, what we're calling high definition approach to everything. So what we do is when we sculpt things, you put all the little grooves and all the little edges in for the armor or the scale mail. What we did on this line is cut everything a little bit deeper, and so we pushed the detail even further into the sculpt, so that uh, one it stands out more, but two, um, the hobbyists, the DIY guys. And girls out there that are painting them can kind of take advantage of all those little details. And we're very, very happy with it. Actually, it, it releases in a couple weeks, a couple, three weeks now. So we're very excited. Just all arrived at the warehouse, and uh, I watched a bunch of it ship out. <sighs> Looks great. Looks great. <laughs> How exciting. Do you do that often where you're like, uh, uh, you know, watching the, a big product go out from the warehouse and, you know, like saluting? <laughs> So it's <laughs> pouring out some so, wine. So when you when you do randomized product, you're used to very low skew counts. So for example, on a pre-painted line, we have two skews. We've got the case of randomized boosters, and we've got this case incentive. Two skews, and so it's two skews going to about thirty places in the world. 
Um, and with, we've been, again, I just want to, because we've been saying skew a lot and we all understand what that means, but maybe people uh, who are listening don't know. So you might want to just. Yeah, two items, basically. You have the booster pack and the case incentive, which is uh, the, the setting piece. And a skew is the sellable unit at the store. Um, the thing with the barcode on it is what is kind of the easiest way to think about it. Right. So um, we have a randomized product and the case incentive. Well, on this line, we've got 50 SKUs mm. going to 35 locations. And so that was like, oh, wow, this is different. And uh, so it's a lot of picking and packing and assembling packages and things like that. But, um, you know, it went well. I watched it leave, saluted it on the way out. Oh, yeah. And uh, we will uh, see them in a couple of weeks. So we're very, very excited about it. Nice. I can't wait to see those. Yeah. So, that sounds really cool. So, Kate, how are you involved in uh, uh, in this miniatures line? Uh, it's, bas- for me, basically, it's the same as um, the, the pre-painted ones. Um, and they even, when I'm looking at them, they'll send me a painted version of the mini um, as well as the, the unpainted version. And just, I think because they know that it helps me um, <laughs> visualize a little bit better. Um, obviously, the unpainted ones are what goes out there, but the, the painted version um, would be on the packaging or, or sometimes in the, the marketing pieces and things like that to show you, well, this is what it could be. Um, but the, the beauty of it is, you know, if you have uh, a drow, you don't have to give it black skin and white hair and red eyes just because that's what we say. You can, you can say, well, it's, um, it's actually a wood elf who is wearing drow armor or something like that. Like, and then know. you have a, a great backstory. Yeah. Or the, the beginning of a backstory. Yeah. Cool hook. I like that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is it harder to market this type of thing? Uh, do you think? Maybe we'll talk about that in a few months when you have... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'll tell you this. The line, it's, it's one of our biggest launches uh, of the year. And... Yeah. Uh, there are other people that do generic forms of this stuff, and we said we have the license, we have the relationship with Watsi, and we have the IP that everyone loves. Why don't we just do it? And uh, it's been great. And so I have no doubt that this will be uh, – they're great minis at a great price, so it's hard to hard to turn down. And hard to, I don't think, I don't think anything, anybody will have an issue with that. It just looks – I'm speechless because they're so good. <laughs> That's – like when I saw them, I was like, oh, my God, we did it. And uh, one of the things that's strange is like people are like when you look at pre-painted minis, um, you realize that some people say, oh, there's not enough detail there. And what you don't realize is when you're making a million miniatures overseas, you don't get to paint them with a the brush. And so you spray paint them with this little basically an airbrush. And when you spray paint a miniature, you can think about all those little grooves and details getting paint kind of built up in them. And so you lose some of the detail that's built into the miniature. So if you unpaint any of our pre-painted miniatures, you'll see so much detail um, that a little bit gets covered up. It's just inevitable when you're doing a million million miniatures a release. On the unpainted line, we don't have that issue. So you're just putting a very fine coat of primer on it, and then you're letting hand painters come in and, and put just the right amount of paint where they need it to preserve all that detail. Well, they look really amazing. Um, yeah. I've, been, I've been really paying attention, and I'm hoping uh, 
uh, all the painters out there uh, uh, really appreciate that, all the work that you two have put in to put it together because it's really, yeah, uh, I, I feel like it is tapping into that idea of the, the, the person who likes to have the ma- magnifying glass and the little, you know, mm-hmm. paintbrush with two or three strands of hair on it and trying to get all <laughs> yeah. the details in there. That's yep. kind of amazing. Uh, so I, I, I have two more questions for you. Uh, one of them might be uh, a, a little bit, but I'll, well, I promise we'll end with uh, the Red Dragon Mask and the Mind Flayer oh, uh, plaque because too. those are super exciting too. But you mentioned a couple times that you have a randomized product for the, uh, for the pre-painted minis. Um, and uh, every once in a while I get people asking me on, on, on Twitter about why that is so. Uh, so may, maybe you can explain to our listeners exactly what, why that is the, the, the way it is. So it's complicated, but I'm gonna I'm going to try to paraphrase it really quickly. Okay. When you randomize the booster uh, line, um, these these uh, figure lines have 50, 60 figures in them, and each one of those figures has uh, something called a tool associated with it. A tool is effectively taking our 3D model and carving it into a little metal piece of metal that. Uh, clamshells, and then you shoot plastic into it. If you guys remember models, like your model airplanes, yeah, exact same process. Uh, and you you get this sprue, and then you cut the miniature out and you assemble it. Well, all that tooling is very expensive, and so by randomizing the product and um, sorting it in such a way where people that uh, want duplicates of things are getting duplicates, or you know. When you want, we put goblins down at the bottom of the commonality so that you get the extras that you need or you want. It allows us to kind of spread the cost out so that we can offer miniatures at effectively $4 per pre painted miniature. So it brings the average cost per mini down. If we were to sell that exact same product uh, visibly, um, it creates two different issues. One, we got to charge probably $15 for a pre-painted miniature in a non-randomized package. And two, you run into a problem at retail where there's fan favorites. So everyone buys the Beholder, nobody buys the, uh, you know, the, the Mind Flayer, for, for lack of a better example. And now you have this, this picking issue. What's happened in the marketplace is kind of the, the, the smart retailers realize that players want to be able to buy what they what you see is what you get buy something that they know what they're getting so they break them into singles and they put them in a display case and they price them um, so people can come buy them individually Um, so the market has kind of figured out a way to unrandomize our product Um, but in the end the reason that we sell randomized product is really to be able to spread that cost out so that we can do 50 figure sets and go very, very deep into the IP without charging the consumer, you know, exorbitant costs. So in the end, it's let's keep the cost per mini down, but you have to buy randomized. And when you're talking DMs, that's not so much of an issue. When you're talking players, I kind of get the pain that they're feeling. Yeah. Uh, and I, I know that they go to the singles market to buy singles. One of the reasons we did the unpainted line is because we thought that this would provide a nice alternative and a nice shopping experience for people that just want their fighter or their dwarf cleric. And they can just go buy it right off the shelf. And that way we keep it all in the family. The IPs, you know, the continuity between the IP is strong. And uh, yeah, that's the that's the long story. It's, it's more complicated than that, but you know, 
it's the, the simplest that, that I can make it for you. That actually makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. I, I think when when I was asked that question, I've always kind of deferred because I actually didn't know what the answer was. But yeah, I mean, once you say like, oh, each individual mini is going to be 15 bucks if we were to do it individually, I think everybody can kind of get behind that. And like, oh, well, that makes sense. I don't want to have to pay, you know, or whatever the price is, like X amount, way more just for that thing. And then you, I mean, you then would run into the problems too of stores not having the one you want because they didn't know mm-hmm. that people were going to want it. And then even you guys and not anticipating which individual miniature in your set would be the most popular and then therefore not having the right quantities. And then because of the lead times that we mentioned about coming overseas, about not being able to like reorder all of a sudden be like, Oh, everybody wants the mind flayers and all right, well, we won't get them for eight months, you know? Right. Um, and so I can see all that. And think about it at retail. I mean, we put out on D&D probably 200 minis a year. And by year four, you've got two walls full of miniatures. And it just becomes a real um, impediment to do business both at the manufacturer to retailer level and retail to consumer level. So, you know, in a weird kind of way, randomization and a blind booster pack help that and the market adjusts and breaks it apart. Savvy retailers break them apart. Um, and then, of course, we'll offer an unpainted line for those guys that just want to target their purchase. Nice. Well, that's what Noel's uh, I keep getting them on. Mar- marvelous miniatures, right? Yeah. <laughs> for yeah. somebody, I want to say magnificent instead of marvelous. But uh, I think it's marvelous. OK, well, I, I agree with you. Um, <laughs> Cool. And then, and then, of course, the Red Dragon uh, uh, plaque uh, is something we should definitely talk about. Kate, were you involved in, uh, in, in, in the, red, the, the look of that Red Dragon uh, plaque? Um, basically, I got to say, oh, my God, yes, we love it. It's approved. <laughs> um, but these guys know how to do a Red Dragon. So Was that um, your idea, Justin? I feel like that was you. So um, I don't know if I'll take credit for it, but I'll, I will tell you this. I like to make cool things. And uh, Liz, who works in licensing at, at Watsi, um, I, I basically said, Liz, can you do me a favor? Can you just work with me on something? I don't know if it's <laughs> going to work. I, I said, I don't know how I'm going to sell it, but I just want to make this cool thing. And if it doesn't work, you know, you'll have this cool thing and I'll send it to you guys for the office. If it does work, we have a we have a product line. And um you know, Kate, Liz, Hillary, everyone that was approving this from the, you know, day one was so kind of flexible. And uh, we basically built this dragon, dragon head, and put it on a shield for mounting it on a wall. And when it got to the office, I was like, oh, my God, we did it. And uh, I think I sent it over to Liz, right, an unpainted one to Liz. Yeah, I remember. And uh, when we got the painted one, I was like, Oh my, this is great. And uh, we put it on display and it was like, it was like, at that point I said, fast track the mind flare, fast track the next one, which you can't talk about yet. Um, so, <laughs> so I've got four of these in development now. It's been like, it just turned into a thing. No way. And yeah, really, really good. That when, is when great. are we, when can we see the mind flare one? Uh, so we've coming? sent you pictures and I think it's, uh, we've had it, we had it on display at uh, Toy Fair. Hmm. Um, and we will have it at the Gamma Trade Show, and it should be coming out later, a couple months, three months. Fun, that's wow. cool. That's exciting. Yeah, mind flayers are always like that's, my one of my favorite yeah. D and D monsters that's because be really cool. those tentacles I know. are they move, but, are they going to be like frozen in time? These tentacles, or will they will you be able to hinge them? Uh, oh. They're frozen. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we want animatronic ones. Yeah. 
<laughs> That's the next no, big idea. Next to is going to have like a singing singing fish kind of version of uh, of these plaques. Oh my god! Oh so, yeah. So, so it kind of it's clock. actually funny. That's how, it's why I said let's do a like it's Billy Bass. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> except it's a dragon. Oh my god! And, and I said except it's a dragon. And um, unbeknownst to anybody, we fooled around with some electronics and some glowing eyes and posable stocks and things like that. So. Um, you know, we're not there yet. The technology, just just kind of the R and D to get all that to work at the quality level we want is hard. But uh, you know, keep your eyes open for that stuff. Okay. It, in fact, the dragon that's sitting in the Watsi lo- lobby on uh-huh. the fourth floor, yeah, is kind of the inspiration for this. Like I, I kind Mitzi. of said, I want one of those things here. I want one of those things at WizKids, and obviously we couldn't have something that big. But uh, our dragon trophy plaque is kind of the uh, derived from that that dragon sitting in the lobby. That's super cool. Yeah. It's very cool. It gets a lot of attention here. People are, I always see people standing in front of it taking their picture. Awesome. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. I'll, uh, Joe Manganello, when he was here, it definitely was like, let me take, take my picture in front of here. Yeah. Yeah. They wanted to do it. It was like bigger than the dragon. And people so. love it for their for their big game room. It's like the great like centerpiece. It's perfect. It's, it's such a good idea. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Long time so good. But it started out kind of as a store decoration program. Like, hey, let's make it enough for stores. And then all of a sudden, the demand started piling up, and, and you know, people are like, "I need one for my bedroom." And I was like, I looked up, and like, "Oh, that's a little weird, but yeah. okay." <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. It needs to be on the ceiling above my bed. Wait, no, that's strange. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to hear about your red dragon fantasies. Uh, only about them in the, the context of Dungeons and Dragons, of course. Right. That, that makes much more sense. No, it doesn't. Well, uh, so the Mindflayer one is coming out in a few months. I'm excited about that. Are, are people still? I mean, I remember hearing that it was sold out. Is the Red Dragon plaque sold out? Uh, Red Dragon sold out, and we're in a what we call reprint. We're gathering reprint orders, so all the distributors uh, are gathering. We basically sent the notification to players and retailers saying, "Hey, if you win a want in, want in on the reprint, you know, let us know, and we're uh, printing uh, as we speak." Right now, um, they're actually tagging tagging along with the Mind Flayers. So they should be here in the next couple months. Cool. Excellent. All right. Well, I think uh, uh, I think that, that covers it. We got everything here. Uh, awesome. Uh, Justin, uh, where can people find out about, about you? And uh, well, and then, of course, WizKids. But more about you. Uh, uh, WizKids, <laughs> uh, WizKidsGames.com. And uh, he has links to all of our products and the D&D products that we do. And you can get a peek at all the uh, unpainted miniatures as well. Awesome. And uh, uh, just, I'm, I'm going to mess up your last name, but it's Zirin, uh, Justin Zirin? Zoran. Zoran. Awesome. So thank you for joining us uh, 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 and talking about WizKids. I think that was a lot of fun. And Kate, thank you for uh, uh, all of your insight on the art uh, about what made these things come to life. That's really exciting to see. Uh, uh, see, see that process happen. So thank you. You're welcome. My thank you. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Talk to you thank soon. Thank you. Bye, Greg. Bye, Bye Shelly. Bye, Bye-bye. Kate. Bye. Bye. That's really cool. Awesome. I want a mind flyer. I do, too. Do I you, think... you must know what the other ones are, Miss Kate. <laughs> um, actually, when he said uh, a couple more. I was like, I only know about one more. So oh, Hillary uh, holding out. Yeah, it's holding out Hillary. <laughs> she knows. We'll find out so more. Yeah, I want to find sh- out what the other one is. I'm pretty sure it's amazing. Yeah, I, I think I'm gonna I think blown I away. I think he gave a hint, and I think I know what it is. Really? Mm-hmm. Well, we'll let our listeners kind of figure gonna, that out. I'm gonna draw a picture of it and show it to Kate, and you say yes or no. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> now, let's see if our listeners can figure it out from those scratches. Scratch, 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 yeah. scratch, scratch. Oh, there were so many. How many scratches were there? All right. Uh, uh, uh. All right. Well, that was amazing. Thank you, Kate, uh, 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 for, for joining us. We'll be here in our little outro here. Where can people find out about more of what you do, Kate? Is it, do you have like a Twitter you handle or anything you want to share? She's, she's grimacing, so I'm going to say no. No, I'm not a. Well, I, I have a Twitter. But I have tweeted nothing. I, you won't get anything <laughs> from me. I yeah, I'm I'm just a little egg. <laughs> That's all right. That makes sense. Yeah. So I like that that there's people who like use it for 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 consuming of news and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, that makes total sense. All right. Well, you can't follow Kate there, but you can look for her work in everything that Wizards. Pretty of the much Coast anything does. that well, D and D that doesn't yeah. puts out. Kate has touched awesome. and made beautiful. I try. Where can they find you, Shelley Moo? Hi, you can find me on Twitter, Shelly Moo, or on Facebook, my, my writer page. I have a writer page. It's fun. Everyone should like it. Yeah. I follow that, too. You do? Of course I do. Oh, my God. For all of your recaps. For my bachelor recaps. <laughs> yep. Get them there. That's the way we get it all. All right, you can find me. I'm at Greg Tito. Uh, and, of course, if you want to find out everything about Dungeons & Dragons, you can follow uh, at Wizards underscore DND. Um, that's where we got all of our latest announcements, as well as the website, DungeonsAndDragons.com. Um, and, uh, yeah, if you have any time today, why don't you just go to the iTunes or uh, Google Play or wherever you leave, might leave reviews for podcasts and uh, give us a little rating and review. Only positive, constructive feedback. Tell us what you think about Ryan. Tell us what you think about Ryan. <laughs> Ryan's work on this and podcast. His, his audio uh, uh, stylings. <laughs> He's uh, 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 being as uh, humble as he can be, but that's all good. And quiet. And can't quiet. crack that Like guy. a mouse. Jeez. I know. He used to talk all the time, but now he's well, Now talk. he can just edit himself out if he does talk. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, guys. Well, we'll power. be back uh, next week with some more fun dragon talk. But until then, stay thirsty, my friends. I don't know. <laughs> 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 we got to come up with a D&D catchphrase yeah. uh, to throw out there. Like, Stay alive. Just keep rolling. The, oh. Yeah. 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 That works. Yeah, you like that? Um, it's it's a good first uh, Yeah, it's try. for off the cuff. Yeah. Spoken like a true art director. <laughs> yeah, good first concept. Yeah. Love Take it. it from there. All right, guys. I'll, I'm going to whip myself later. <laughs> you do that. <laughs>